Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, welcome back. This is Walk Through the Bible, week 31. This week, we are reading in the Daily Bible the dates of July 30 through August the 5th, or the pages of 963 through 999. Now, this week, we're going to get to know the prophet Jeremiah's personality a little bit. We're going to kind of put our feet in his shoes as he uh, complains to the Lord, but we're also going to see how the Lord uses him in certain prophetic acts, and uh, we're going to talk about Josiah some more. So lots to cover. Let's get started. Uh, Last week, we talked about the great prophet of Jeremiah, his calling, his calling to a very, very lonely role as a prophet, and then uh, his temple sermon where he kind of wrapped it all up there standing at the the gates of the temple, um, the the temple sermon is sort of a all in all. It's uh, kind of like a composite of all his message there. And uh, so this week, I want to talk a little bit about Jeremiah's uh, personality because I think we can all relate to this. So I'm not going to give out all the references, but some of the words of Jeremiah that you'll be reading this week is he says, you know, Lord, I've done nothing wrong, yet everyone curses me. And then he actually accuses God of having deceived him. And God rebukes him and promises uh, to protect him. Another time, Jeremiah begs God to execute his judgment. Now it's like, okay, you say you're going to bring your judgment. You say you're going to destroy them. Just do it, okay? Do it. And uh, we read these things in chapter 15. And in chapter 18, he says, Listen to me, Lord. Hear what my accusers are saying. They've dug a pit to capture me and have hidden snares for my feet. Deal with them in your anger. I mean, he's saying, Lord, go after them. Get them, you know, in your anger. And in chapter 20, he says, Cursed be the day I was born. Why did I ever come out of the womb? I mean, don't you see Jeremiah's frustration? And he's like, why am I even doing this? Do you ever, have you ever related to this? Have you ever felt that way? Kind of like, you know, what's it all about? Is this really worth it? Am I having any impact whatsoever, Lord? And here God's telling Jeremiah he's going to judge his people and destroy Jerusalem and they're all going in exile. And he's like, just do it already. Why why are we waiting? What are we waiting for? But God's call upon him is stronger than his frustration and it's stronger than his dismay. And so we read in chapter 20, verse 9, he says, But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. 
the calling of God was like a fire in his bones, and he was compelled to continue on each day to get back up and to continue proclaiming the word of the Lord. May the Lord's calling in all of our lives be as that burning fire that we will not give up, we will not be discouraged, and we will continue on to serve him, trusting him for the fruit. Our responsibility is faithfulness. And this is what we have to understand that in these prophets, especially Jeremiah, but also in Isaiah and in the others, they were called to being faithful and to continue proclaiming the word of the Lord. They were not called to bear fruit. They didn't have a large following. And especially Jeremiah, he was not called to the fruit. That was up to God. He was called to be faithful and thus are we. Then the Lord also had Jeremiah do what I call prophetic acts. It wasn't just to proclaim the word. He actually had to act out the word or to give the word at a place where there was an example, a word picture nearby. So last week I talked about how God called him to go stand at the door to the temple and to proclaim about the temple. You say the temple, the temple, the temple, but you're just using it as a lucky charm. It's not going to protect you in the end. Well, this week we read where God told him to go to the gate where the kings sit. This is the gate of the city where the kings would sit. And he was to prophesy that they were not keeping the Sabbath. Now remember, why is the Sabbath important? Because the Sabbath was the sign of God's covenant with his people Israel, and they were not obeying it. They weren't paying it any attention. And so he went and he proclaimed that they needed to obey the Sabbath. God also told him to go to the potter's house and to declare to the people that they were like clay in the hand of the potter. What a perfect example that God, the creator of the universe, he's the creator, he's the potter. They're nothing but like clay in his hands. He'll do whatever he wants to with them. Or he told him to go to the potsherd gate. Now, the potsherd gate is where they threw away the old pieces of clay pots. Now, you might say, why? They had a special gate just for that? Well, no. It was probably the gate that went out to that area. But keep in mind that the people didn't have a lot of things like paper and papyrus and, and all of this. They used potsherds. They wrote on the clay. They used it for all of their utensils, all of their pots. Everything was made out of clay. And when they'd break a piece of potsherd, when they'd break a pot, they'd have pieces of potsherds and they needed to get rid of them. So they would go out this gate, probably towards the Valley of Hinnom, which had become a dump, a refuge, and they would throw the broken pieces of clay there. So God tells them to go there, and then he says, tell them I'm going to smash them to pieces like a jar. So, you know, you have a beautiful big clay jar, maybe a big water pot stood 
you know, three feet off the ground. And God's saying, don't trust in that water pot because I'm going to crush it into pieces. That's God's judgment that was coming. So now let's get back to our story about Josiah and to understand what's happening here uh, during these days of Jeremiah. So as I mentioned last week, Josiah became king when he was eight years old. And so he's hearing Zephaniah and he's hearing Jeremiah. So by the time he's a teenager and he's able to make more decisions and do things, he begins to reform. He begins to get rid of the idolatry. And then he takes on a big project of renovating the temple. Now, why? Well, because when these evil kings would get into idolatry, a lot of times they actually turned the temple of the God of Israel into a temple to another God. And so they'd move everything around, they'd set up statues, and they'd set up the things that they used to worship that pagan God. So somebody like Josiah went back in and he had it completely renovated and he's reinstating the true worship of the God of Israel. And what happens? they find a book of the law of Moses. And when the priest takes it to him and he reads from it to the king, Josiah tears his robe, which is a, a sign of distress. And he said, here, 2 Kings twenty two thirteen, Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Now, I want you to stop and think about this for a minute. Here's Josiah. He's wanting to reinstate true worship of the God of Israel. He's wanting to get rid of the idolatry. Why? Because Zephaniah and Jeremiah are saying it's wrong but he actually didn't know the law of Moses. So when he hears it, he realizes how far off they are from obeying the law of Moses. So for him and for all the people, they had a lot to learn from this. And they, so he gathers all the people, he has the book of the law read to them all, and they renewed their covenant with the Lord. It says, Josiah then purged Jerusalem and Judah and even the northern territory of the of previous Israel, kingdom of Israel, he purged it all. He even went to Bethel, where remember Jeroboam who started the perverted worship in Bethel and Dan? It specifically says he went to Bethel and he had everything crushed and ground up. He got rid of all the idols, all the worship there. And it says he did it throughout all of Samaria. So hopefully he also did it in Dan. I didn't mention Dan by name. And then they had a great Passover celebration. It says it was the greatest Passover celebration since the time of the prophet Samuel. Now, Josiah, during this time, is blessed and um, he expands the kingdom, he strengthens the kingdom. Well, what does that mean? Remember our seesaw? Well, if Judah's getting stronger and larger, it means Assyria is getting weaker. 
Now, um, I want to talk about the fall of Assyria then. The uh, fall of Nineveh comes first, and it is roughly 40 years after the prophet Nahum said that Nineveh would fall. So in 612 BC, a coalition of the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Scythians went against the city of Nineveh because that was the capital of what was left of the Assyrian Empire, the weakened Assyrian Empire, I should say. And the way they took the city is exactly the way Nahum said in his book, and that is they dammed up the river. So the, let me tell you, the city of Nineveh is located right on the Tigris River, but there is a tributary off the Tigris River that is called the river, let me find the name, uh, Kozer, K-H-O-S-E-R, the Kozer River. It went right straight through the city of Nineveh. Because remember, Nineveh was huge. And Nineveh, had it was a beautiful city. It had hanging gardens. It had a zoo. It had over 100,000 people lived inside the city of Nineveh. So they had their own river. Well, the enemy came along then, and what did they do? They dammed up that river, and it backed up into the city of Nineveh, and it flooded it, and the bricks dissolved, and the, they began to fall in because of the moisture from the water. That is exactly what the prophet Nahum said in chapter 2, and I said that the, the palace would fall in. And um, But Nineveh was destroyed so completely that it actually just became a, a, a tale, a mound. And um, it was like 2,500 years later that archaeologists began to uncover the ancient city of Nineveh. Once again, just as Nahum said in 311, he said that the city would go into hiding. It would be hidden. Now, uh, we have Nineveh Falls and the Assyrians retreat, and they retreat farther north, and they're getting weaker and weaker. And so, uh, at this point in our story, our godly king, Josiah, makes a terrible, terrible mistake, and it cost him his life. Josiah goes to battle when the Lord has not told him to go to battle. And uh, it's a defeat, and he loses his life. So what's happening? In um, 609 B.C. now, Nineveh has fallen, and Assyria has been driven back. And so Egypt comes up from the south, up the international trade highway, to go and help Assyria to fight against this coalition with the Babylonians. Well, Josiah hates the Assyrians. The Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They had come against the south. They had taken many cities in the south. And they were evil, and he hated them. So he didn't want Egypt to go up and to help Assyria. So Josiah takes his own troops to the city of Megiddo and confronts the Egyptians. Now, why Megiddo? because the International Trade Highway, when it gets up to the city of Megiddo, it turns and goes through the Jezreel Valley all the way over to the Sea of Galilee. And at that juncture, 
the small troops of Judah had the opportunity to maybe surprise the Egyptian troops and to actually defeat them. But Egypt is much bigger than Judah. And so the king of Egypt, Necho, says to Josiah, he sends his messengers and they say, you know, we don't have any problem with you, Josiah of Judah. Why are you getting in our way? And um, they're, they're like, there's no battle between us. And Josiah persisted and he went to battle and he is mortally wounded and he dies. And so now Judah is a part of Egypt. Very sad because Josiah with his reforms really could have done what maybe extended the life of Judah for uh, decades. Um, we don't know what all he could have done, but he ran out ahead of the Lord and he confronted the mighty Egyptians and he paid for it with his life. Now, um, Egypt then, um, one, of, one of Josiah's sons becomes uh, the king in his place, but he's only there for, I think, three months and he's replaced by the Egyptians. They put another son of Josiah as king and they changed his name to Jehoiakim. So Jehoiakim was a vassal of Egypt. He paid tribute to Egypt. He reigned for 11 years and he was very, very evil. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, which means he brought back in the paganism and the idolatry. Now, Jeremiah is so sad over the loss of Josiah that he actually writes a lament for him. It's a huge blow to the future of Judah. And also, it's a huge blow to Jeremiah because now without a godly king of Josiah, Jeremiah has no friends. He has no support. He doesn't have a king that likes what he's saying. He now has Jehoiakim who doesn't like what he's saying at all. So Jeremiah ends up being charged and arrested, you could say, taken captive. In the end, he is released. But the uh, scripture reading this week tells us that there's another prophet whose name was Uriah, and Uriah had been preaching the same thing Jeremiah had. He was killed by Jehoiakim. So it's looking very, very dangerous for Jeremiah. This week, we then leave, let's leave Jeremiah and we go to the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is a very short book. We read the whole thing this week. But Habakkuk is questioning here how a righteous and holy God can use a wicked nation like Babylon to bring punishment against God's own people, even though they are rebellious and sinful. And so the answer is that the Babylonians, if they are evil, they too will suffer God's judgment. That's a very quick summary of the book of Habakkuk. Now, I want to go back as we, uh, as one of our last points this week, I want to go back to Jeremiah. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 46, there is a beautiful scripture here where Jeremiah reassures Judah, not that they're not going to suffer judgment, no, 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 but that even after judgment, 
there is a day of hope coming for them. So let me read it for you. It's verses 27 and 28. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel. I will surely save you out of a distant place your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, for I am with you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. This chapter is the closing for Judah, but it's a whole new chapter that's opening up later. This is what Jeremiah is saying. I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, yes, but with measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. They have to be punished, but God's going to measure it. He's going to make sure that they are not destroyed. And he says, for I am with you. That means that even in their judgment and in their exile, God is saying, I am with you. What a profound history we are into right now. What a profound moment of the history of the Bible. Do you share my sense of awe about it? Our God is so faithful. He is true. His word is true. And because of that, he is so consistent. He told his people over and over and over what was the problem and what was the solution. He never changed his mind. He never changed his requirements. It was all there from the days of Moses. Based on what he told Moses, based on his covenant with the people of Israel, is exactly the way God behaved. He told them all ahead of time. And then he reminded them through the prophets over and over and over, if you do this, you will experience blessing. If you do this, you are going to suffer judgment and go into exile because you will be defiling my land. Very consistent, but always with that ray of hope that one day, though, even after your judgment, after your exile, after your punishment, I will bring you back. And once again, you will have peace and security in your land, this beautiful land, this beautiful inheritance inheritance that I've set aside for you. One day, one day, one day, all the prophets had this hope as they saw judgment approaching. Now, I hope you enjoy your reading of Jeremiah this week. Before we close, I'm going to take just a few more minutes. I want to tell you something else that's at work here. Uh, You're probably not going to read this anywhere, but it's something that really stuck out to me in the reading this week. When Josiah was renovating the temple, the priest uncovered a book of the law, and it was read to Josiah. 
in a way as a testimony of this is the way you're supposed to be living, you and the people of Judah. This, this is my original agreement. And based on this agreement, if you disobey, judgment is coming. And it's as though that at the very time, this time of history, God is about to act and he's about to act in judgment. And as a result, he reveals his word ahead of time. He explains to his people ahead of time what it is that he's about to do. Now, he's done this again in most recent history, in our history and in our day. And so I want to tell you a story about 1947. In 1947, I'm skipping way ahead in all of our history, but as you know, the Jewish people had been in exile for 1900 years. The Romans had destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Jewish people had either been killed or dispersed, a few left behind in the city of Jerusalem. And since then, that there had been no Israel and the Jewish people had been in exile for almost 2,000 years. That is a very, very long time. But beginning in the 1900s, in the, actually beginning in the 1800s, God began setting the stage for their return. And one day, uh, after we finish our walk through the Bible, I'll do some sessions and I'll, I'll teach about this part of history and what God did in order to bring his children back home after almost 2,000 years of exile that he brought them back miraculously, no doubt. So in 1947 now, this is a key date, a key point in this story. The United Nations is considering what to do with this ancient land of Israel. The British had said, we want it to be a homeland for the Jewish people, but then all this fighting erupted. The Arabs were attacking the Jews. There was a, a tension. There ended up almost civil war between the Jews and the Arabs and the British, and it was really, the tension was building every day. So the British had turned it over to the United Nations, and they said, you find a solution because we're out of there. We're leaving. And so the United Nations is considering this in November of 1947. What else is happening at this time? There was an Arab Bedouin shepherd boy, and he finds a cave, an undiscovered cave. And so he throws a rock into the cave to see if there's anything in there, what might be in there. Of course, it's dangerous to go into a dark cave not knowing are there animals in there, what's in there. And the rock hits upon a jar and, um, and he goes in and he, he hears it break. He hears the jar break. So he goes and he gets a friend and he brings him back and they go in and they find what are ancient scrolls that have been hidden inside clay jars. These scrolls had been hidden there since the days before Christ. And because of the destruction of the temple by the Romans, they had been left there for 2,000 years in this ancient, uh, hot, dry desert climate there that preserved them. And so there was a professor at Hebrew University, uh, Professor Sulkanik, and he found out about the existence of these scrolls, and he was able to purchase three of them, and he took them to his home, and he unscrolled 
the scroll, you'll know the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the scrolls was the entire book of Isaiah. And he's sitting there in his home on November 29th, 1947. And he's looking at the fragment, the scroll of the book of Isaiah. And he said that while he was reading the words of Isaiah, he was listening on the radio to the United Nations vote taking place in New York. And the, the vote was in favor of the partition of the land that there could be a Jewish state on parts of it and there could be an Arab state on the other parts of it. And that the British were leaving in May 1948. And so that paved the way legally for the Jewish state to be declared then in May 1948, when the British pulled out. So here it is. The professor is looking at the words of Isaiah, and he is listening to this amazing historic vote, paving the way for the reestablishment of Jewish sovereignty in the ancient land of Israel. And he's reading these words out of Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says the Lord. Speak ye comfortly, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God had revealed his word at the very point in history when he was fulfilling that word. That's what happened in the days of Josiah when they found that ancient book of the law. It was God saying, this is what's going to happen. And here in 1947, he reveals his word to the Jewish people that it's over. They've paid. The exile is over. It's time to come home. Speak the words tenderly to Jerusalem. It's a whole new era. Isn't that exciting? That is the amazing God that we serve. He is so consistent that when he's about to act, he uncovers the writings from 2,500 years ago to 4,000 years ago. And he says, that's what I'm about to do. And so he does. Be blessed in your reading of the word this week. I'll see you back here next week. And until then... God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.